amplifying the things we've been told to shut up about in as many languages as possible. Our races might be different, but our struggles, universal. The only way to make the world hear our stories is by telling it we are not crazy, you are. Our guest today is Dilakewa Ntengwe. They are a Namibian feminist. They're an intersectional social and human rights activist. They're currently the advocacy and communications officer for Outright Namibia, an organization that aims at advancing the course on sexual and gender-based rights for minorities in Namibia. They also work as communications associate for HCD Exchange Youth Leadership Hub based in Kenya, which is to coordinate and implement youth-centric designs in Southern Africa. They have a very long list of amazing things, some of which include the activists for the movement Shut It All Down Namibia. All right. Ndilukela, um, thank you so much for speaking to me on 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 this podcast this is like um this is really awesome because i i'm getting to meet amazing women from all over the world and getting to know you and all of the work that you do is amazing so tell me a little bit about you okay well lokelwa is 24 years old she or they are gender non-binary lesbian and currently living on their Mm. own they just moved in their own place and awesome occupying so many spaces so many hats And yes. really just, yes, yes, really just um, finding many, many ways to ensure that freedom is one of the most important things that, that is upheld when I engage in specific spaces or I occupy specific spaces. I think that's what I can share for now. <laughs> I, I would say that, you know, wearing more hats is apt because you are Higher Voice Fund Ambassador for Namibia. You're an Advocacy and Communications Officer for Outright Namibia. Your uh, communications associate for HCD Exchange Kenya. And then this is just, you know, there is also all that amazing work that you do on advocacy with on social media and off social media. Some of the things that have taken flight for com- from conversations that have been had on social media. When you were younger, did you see yourself in this space at all? Not at all. Not at all. Not even... This, not even. <laughs> I always thought I would either be a soccer player or a neuro neurosurgeon. Yes. No way. This is two years. Things. Come. Because I was actually influenced for the, for, for the neurosurgeon part. I was influenced by one movie titled Gifted Hands. And it was by this doctor. And this doctor that sort of did a very big surgery on twins. And since then, I've just been inspired. I just wanted to be a neurosurgeon. And that was now my dream before. And then during that time, I also fell in love with soccer. I used to play soccer so much with my brothers and with my brother's friends in the street at church so I became so good at it that everyone also believed that I would become a professional soccer player and that is what I also wanted to be at some point so that's what I I thought I would all right awesome um you sound like a really badass woman I'm not going to lie to you a woman who can you know (laughs) like play these kinds of sports and then you know can dream it's like it's limitless for you and to be honest I'm lucky to have met a number of amazing women like you. And so I don't feel so crazy sometimes when I'm 
thinking of doing so many things at the same time. Um, mm. you, you know, you're a feminist, right? And that's not a bot. It's, a, it's an ant. You're a feminist and that pleases a lot of people, doesn't it? I, I, I think it, it, it does. It definitely does. I think it started in my family. I started pissing many people off in my family, uncles, and because I only have brothers, it was even worse. Mm. <laughs> and later on, started pissing off more people in schools, and later on, now the country <laughs> with the activism work and the advocacy on on gender equality. So it definitely mm. has been pissing so many people off, and it's fine because I've been able to find sort of my tribe, people that I yeah. learn and grow from that inspire me so i don't think i'm missing out on anything mm. when was the earliest time that you realized that you were a feminist okay so the concept feminism only surfaced in my life in in my gap year just shortly after high school so i purchased my first feminist books and the first one was a book by Mampela Rampele, and the book was titled A Passion for Freedom. And this book really explored her political identity during the apartheid administration and her gender identity in a white cisgender heteropatriarchal environment, right? So, so that book shaped my political identity and feminism in so many significant ways. And the second book also is by uh, is the book called Run Racist Run by Eusebius McKaiser. And although this book really primarily journeys into the heart of racism in South Africa, as it is titled, it broadened once again also my social political foundation to understand the internal racism in Namibia. Um, as I began to also connect the similarities in our political histories, and so those two books have informed my earliest understanding of feminism, and and that is from those books that I, I grew and read more books because I've always been a very studious person, always reading, very very yeah. academic, very very intensive person, contemplative. Very and so those were the first books that I that I that I purchased. Not the first book I would say, but really that had feminism explored and, mm-hmm. and, and addressed throughout. So that's where my my concepts for feminism began and grew. I imagine that being a feminist gender minority in an African country like Namibia, probably Nigeria as well. To be honest, not probably, definitely Nigeria as well. To be honest, has to have its you know really has to have his downsides. So I wonder what exactly it feels like for you, you know, as this person, you know, as gender non-binary, as a feminist, as a lesbian in Namibia for you. Mm. Well, I would say that, yeah, I think the feeling is, 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 is very much informed by the ways that I've been exposed to gender in the country and the ways that I also okay. interpret feminism in the country. So, and I think this was made very clear to me when I was living in Cape Town, I had so much more of a sense of freedom or liberty. And that is really just internal freedom and liberty, psychologically and philosophically, because I had access to so many of this very rich or enriching books by many, many feminists. And also because of the laws, the very liberal laws, especially for gender minorities in South mm-hmm. Africa. And then then moving back to Namibia is then understanding, yes, there are similarities, there are intersectional similarities with the gender inequalities that both South Africa and Nam- Namibian women experience. And then also the other layer of um, sexual identity and, and feminism and, and, and again, gender equality. So it's been, it's been, it's been me taking in 
both sides, you know, the gender equality landscape where I understand there's many challenges and structures and then also just the, the layers of, 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 of uh, violence with uh, sexual, sexual minorities. So, yes, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, a, it's a very, very philosophical perspective that I'm bringing, but I think that's how I can best summarize my personal experience. What are some of the top three feminist issues that you care about when it comes to Namibia? All right. Okay. So top three is abortion law reform, abortion rights or reproductive justice, rather. Then we come to sexual and gender-based violence. And then we come to sexual and gender minority rights. Those are the three most important. Mm. And all of them really is about gender, but they all have their different pieces as well, as you pointed out. How can you describe abortion laws currently for who, you know, isn't in Namibia? All right. So currently with abortion laws, Namibia has inherited one of many from previous colonial structures and administrations. And one of those includes the Abortion Sterilization Act of 1975 that was first imposed by the then South African apartheid regime. And South Africa had since 45 years later uh, repealed and amended their law and Namibia has kept that same colonial law. So under that specific law, abortion is only legal under three conditions, which is a woman can only get a, an abortion if it's a threat to her mental health, if it's a threat to her life, if it's a threat to the fetus, mm-hmm. or if it was rape or incest. So those are the, the current con- restricted conditions. Uh, legal conditions under which a woman can obtain an abortion. And so even even with the ways that then you have to, the system that you have to go through to obtain this legal abortion under that strict current condition is you need two medical doctors and one of them has to be a district surgeon. Mm. You need a psychiatrist to approve, to evaluate you. You need also the superintendent in the hospital, or a state hospital, to approve the, the process and you need also an approval by the magistrate court of of the affidavit that you opened for specific reasons why you want to obtain an abortion again there's the restricted conditions and then other restricted conditions when you even when you meet specific criteria that you again have to go through so that is what the law is is like now for, for women that seek abortions in the country that sounds really hectic so before you make a decision on your body you need all these people who say that it's okay for you to make that yes. decision on your own body very 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 much so it's very very invasive and very violent and then as a result of this the statistics of women who die from unsafe abortions you know, it's really high. I recently mm. did an investigation into uh, on unsafe abortions and the deaths, and we have African countries leading, Nigeria being one of the highest. And then what is so interesting about yeah. these movements, anti-abortion movements, is that some of it is funded, you know, by the West, by the seemingly mm. more progressive Western countries like the US. How does this make you feel exactly? This is actually very, very layered for me and very interesting because people with sexual and gender and sex minorities, the LGBTQ community, the reasons that people give for why people you can't recognize their rights is because people feel that it is Western influenced attitudes and not necessarily an identity, thus erasing their humanity, right? But now coming to mm-hmm. abortion, yeah. 
again it's almost like it's almost like the opposite like no actually it is it is informed by western ideology again and and that's why they are funding it so that women are women in african countries for example do not have access or agency to their bodies so it's it's it's, it's interesting mm. and it it again just i i think it's just a cop out of really getting to the heart of the the matter which is that any country any any kind of developed country can fund a specific region for many reasons right but at the core of it really is mm-hmm. in that specific country do you uphold the dignity and the rights and agency of women in your country regardless of who is funding you yes. you know and do you put that yeah. above the agency of the women yeah. in your country women who by the way if are more empowered can contribute significantly to the growth of your economy and your country and and that has been proven mm-hmm. so that is really what must be at the heart of 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 answering this and i would say on my end all right and that's that's you know sort of the bulk of the work that you do um in your organization you're the co-founder of voices for choices mm-hmm. and rights coalition so what's the basis on which that coalition was formed and for you guys what what work do you hope to achieve in the coming years yes yeah, so so after this petition was launched in june last year for abortion law reform myself and the co-founder we came together and we said we need to amplify the voices we we need to amplify the cause it cannot just end with a petition mm-hmm. and we said you know what we both we both have networks in the country myself already being in a position where i have networked with many other organizations on conferences etc and in themselves too and then us then saying let's write letters to these different coalition coalitions or soon to be coalition members to ask for solidarity mm-hmm. or to request for solidarity during this time to to such an extent that the solidarity is shown at the protests and we also just with response to the current backlash that we've been receiving so that is then how it was formed we wrote out letters and soon later soon after shortly after the coalition was formed we had created a whole whatsapp group and that's when we started mobilizing and strategizing planning and during that time we also then started coming up with more ideas for what we aim to achieve just in that short period at the time because it was so so contentious right but we also believe that because of that we need to continue and that's when the protest started and mm-hmm. and after that that's when we said now we need to do something more institutional we need to now go into the systems and engage all the different political and and organizational structures in order for us to then sink our teeth even further and that's how we then had mandates to look at three focus areas which is advocacy and litigation and communication strategizing and community building and so we definitely got lucky by the end of last year where we got funding from various organizations to do firstly the litigation and advocacy so it is really looking at a plan long term on how best approach the litigation strategy secondly is the communications where we've had an organization fund the resources around training for communication what exactly how do we need to how do we engage how do we communicate on abortion because it was also during the time that also going through a lot of similar things malawi 
especially with with Namibia and myself also coincidentally yeah. having just completed an abortion course as well an online abortion course so that had to tie into our strategies also and then looking at community building where in December we went into the first region to empower young girls adolescent mm-hmm. people and 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 gender diverse communities on the current laws as it is in of of abortion so then long term we are looking at really continuing the same thing but it is really litigation and advocacy that we continue to look at the ways that we can reform the law mm. it's amazing it's amazing really you know the amount of impact that uh, you guys have had and i want us to back up to the protest a little bit and talk about that um shut it all down namibia we felt the heat here in nigeria i mean we're going through something similar and then we felt that we felt, yeah, we felt like we were connected by this unfortunate Very much. thing that we have to fight. So what was, what was the movement all about? Shut it all down. How did it start off and where is it right now? So it all started off with, with a, the news of a, a, an adolescent girl who also was my cousin. That was whose bodily remains was was discovered in a shallow grave in one of the coastal towns in the, the country, and she's been missing for she was missing for six months, right? Since June of last year, was it June? No, since April of last year, and so her body was discovered, or her remains were discovered in October, right? And I think the news was reported on fifth of October, and in the time of of, of everyone looking for her and her disappearance, it attracted a lot of public attention, right? Because this was not the first time that this has happened to an adolescent girl in the country, and which again again mm-hmm. highlights the, the, the culture of, of, of um, the complete uh, neglect, neglect or negligence of, of adolescent girls in the country. And so this was not the first time. Mm-hmm. So this caught on a lot of public attention to the first lady's office, the president's office, many, many different communities. And so that Monday, when the news broke that they had discovered what would, what was suspected to be their remains, everyone knew that it was it was her, right? So that's when mm-hmm. a colleague of mine, Gidi Monjila, and another colleague, Berta Tobias, had, had then, they caucused first amongst themselves to write a petition to government on the issues around sexual and gender-based violence with a list of many, many demands to reform institutionally, structurally, the ways in which STBV is perpetrated in the country. And so that's when the first protest now started on the 8th of October. And it was really with the aim to address all, firstly, systems of power and structures of power, right? Because we went to to the police. We protested at, even at we protested at the Ministry of Gender of Justice. We protested corporates as well. We protested many, 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 many institutions. We even wanted we even wanted to protest at, to protest at church. And unfortunately, though, we could not because that was even the time, or that was around the time that a lot of protesters also were were bullied and intimidated by, by law enforcement to a point that they were unlawfully yeah. detained and. So now court cases were involved, etc. So where we are currently is we've continued to form this pressure group of Shut It All Down, members that when at any given time we will protest if there's an issue. Like we just protested recently at a a high school that continued to gatekeep a sexual predator 
for many, many years. So that is what we are continuing to do, yes. It's it's crazy how it's it's just a culture. It's a thing where, you know, one section has all the power and then the other have to fight twice as hard for their own rights before they're heard. And there is a power dynamic that I see that that definitely affects the way women go through abuse. What's this power dynamic like in Namibia? Okay, so I would say power dynamics are cyclical, systemic, and parasitic, right? Because it's more than just resources. It's, it's very psychological and it's deeply entrenched mm-hmm. in systems, in people's minds. And sometimes people don't even see it. They are not even aware. Some people are not even aware that they wield specific power even without the resources at their disposal. Mm-hmm. And so it looks exactly like that in Namibia. The systems and institutions, they are cyclical and in the sense that they continue to perpetuate the same kinds of violence because power dynamics really is there to uphold these systems of violence which is then upheld or well founded under patriarchy. Right? So and it is definitely mm-hmm. seen in the way that it is parasitic because it ongoing for so many years and to a, to a point where it, it silences many people's voices, it erases people's identities, you know, and it, it, it it's deeply entrenched in that way. And for me, I believe that that is, I think, my next point of, you know, reflections or, un, or, or sort of like unlearning or learning that I want to now get on, you know, because there's the gender yeah. work that I'm doing, gender activism. And so now I want to now take it a layer further and really understand power dynamics in systems, even within gender, gendered systems, you know, and really the many ways that it can influence and affect someone's agency and ability to to, to exist and to to advocate for themselves, for example. And so I think that's 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 where I mm-hmm. currently am. That's where I'm, I'm looking at things in the country right now. So it's very often now recently that I've just been in a room and I understand, okay, this is where the power dynamics lie. This is where my power lies and this is the way that I can wield it. And the responsibility also that I have with it. So that's how I'm, I, I would mm-hmm. describe power dynamics, cyclical system and parasitic. You know, going back to, you know, the movement, shut it all down. I can see how power dynamics played a huge role, especially in a school. As a person who has investigated sexual harassment in schools, it's, it's really obvious that the lecturer has a lot of power over the students. And we're talking about underage mm-hmm. students here. And, you know, to mention, it was a huge impact that the movement had shut it all down. Namibia. it had such a huge impact. I don't know. That, I don't know if it feels like that to you. Do you feel like it had a huge impact? Well, I think after our recent recognition by the African Union of an mm-hmm. award that we that shut it all down won as 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 a as the movement or that addressed sexual and gender based violence in Namibia. After that rec- recognition yeah. recently, that's when I realized but wow, actually this has been so huge. I think the reason I had not seen it the way that I would have or do see it now is because I've been in the work already from when I started mm-hmm. it outright and then occupying many other spaces and especially with the abortion law reform, I've been in the work and I've been experiencing or understanding the impact of now this this many different institutions, etc. and and the ways that people are or women rather are are engaging the content of abortion, etc. So I've been in yeah. the work so for me, when we were protesting, it was just me continuing that work. It's more just work that I've been seeing, that I've been doing. And the impact 
Mm. Now I've seen, wow, it's been, it's been amazing. But looking back then, I was really just in the work. In the work. I can imagine that. It was probably uh, just another Tuesday for you. Uh, but <laughs> there is... <laughs> No, for real. But, you know, you, you, you step away from it a mm. bit and you see that, you know, the suspects, the manager resigned. And you also see that, you know, there is potential jail term for this man. You know, potentially, maybe the school might be shut down. Probably not. Potentially, the man might face the, the, the law. You know, it, it's really such a huge impact coming from coming from a place where we hardly get to see any justice. This is I'm, I take it as a personal win, you know, all the way from here in Nigeria to Namibia. Okay, so you've spoken about yes. um, the sexual and gender based violence. You've spoken about the abortion laws and we can see how interconnected they are. And it all has to do with power dynamics, of course. Now, let's look at sexual and gender minorities in Namibia. And the state of things right now, what what is the work that you're doing towards making sure that equality cuts across? And what does it feel like? Is that what's the progress feel like right now? Okay, I think you know the, for me, yeah, the, the emphasis really is on intersectionality, right? And um, and and this is expressed in various feminist-led groups and and the ways that they organize and design programs. You know, and that really includes extra inclusive budgeting, for example, for programs mm -hmm. so that it is not assumed anymore that a specific identity was represented, but that it is reflected okay. in, in an activity line, for example, or for an activity. And that is so, so important because this intersectionality must not just become another buzzword that people pick up and use to sound very, very intellectual because it's not even... Mm -hmm you know, the case. And, and it, can be, it can be used in, in so many templates and so many languages, right? And, and it can also be translated in so many languages for other people based on their context, level of education, and, and the language that they apply this in. And so intersectionality in what I mean here is really making sure that you bring all of these different identities in this specific room that is now if you are working, if your organization or your company or your agenda is focused on on gender, for example. And okay. you bring all of these identities in this room and you see how you program more inclusive for their specific resources, for their empowerment, for their agency, to ensure that these programs later on do not exclude and that it is not assumed, you know, because most times you go into different organizations, even political organizations, when we look at political parties and when they rally and they mobilize, it is always assumed that they mean they talk about everyone, you know, all genders, everyone's rights, equality for all. But when we look at really the blueprint and the nitty gritty, the devil is always mm. in the detail. In mm. fact, in mm -hmm. these cases, the devil is not there because they don't include us. And that's when you begin to see how that is really, that's just, um, you know, they, it, it, it's just really concepts that they throw around once again, even in these political structures, to placate people because that is what people need to hear the most to feel like they belong. But the investigation has to go into that manifesto 
your programming, what exactly, how, to what extent are you including all identities? Did you mention them, you know, by their categories and not say all persons that are poor, for example, that is, again, not something that you would want to use. You must say in this specific category of people, this is the way that they are affected by poverty and this is the way that we will intervene. So that is the way that I would say the work is, is, is should be done. All right. All right. Awesome. We're just going to look at um, like a personal experience for you. A thing that maybe you've experienced or uh, uh, someone has come out to um, talk to you about just to get a visual of exactly um, a practical example of what it feels like to be a minority and living in Namibia and what could happen to you. Definitely. I would, I would, I would come back to the current Domestic Violence Act of 2003 in Namibia that is currently under review. The draft is under review because it was submitted for amendment as it did not include same-sex couples or from protections of, of, of SGTV-related cases and or violence, rather. Mm. And so currently, it, 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 it's, mm. almost, it's almost as if now same-sex couples are not protected from, from domestic violence in this Domestic Violence Act. And mm. so coming back to the lived experiences mm. is that in the same same-sex relationships, even if they, they are not married, for example, they do not feel that protection and they do not have recourse. So their cases are again reduced to a petty kind of case. And that again yeah. expresses or demonstrates the ways that many sexual and, and gender minorities feel excluded again from, from policies and laws in this country and protective measures also in this country. So, and this is a recent yeah. development. It just happened now okay. yesterday or the day before. So we've had conversations with um, same-sex couples. We've had conversations with even just LGBTQ plus youth who are not in relationships but intend to understand what the law means for them in the future or just in their everyday surrounding. And really the what they've mm-hmm. expressed is after understanding what what is going on is really that so if they are in an abusive relationship they don't have recourse and most of them also don't even understand that they are and they can be in abusive relationships because in Namibia there's been a study also that's revealed that one of the biggest contributors to gender-based violence is emotional abuse and financial abuse and when we look at same-sex couples or same-sex structures most of these most of these community members do not have access to, to resources like all the different other heterosexual structures and, and, and persons. So when they get into these relationships, most of them are very, very transactional. So there's financial abuse that occurs, mm-hmm. right? There's a power dynamic yeah. because there's also the age gap that, that exists also, sometimes between the younger generation and that interne- intergenerational um, sexual sexual transactions and then also if it's just between couples for example they don't understand emotional abuse they don't because because of the assumption is if you are same sex then you understand emotionally what both of you might be experiencing 
And it's an assumption that is deeply, deeply harmful, you know? And so that is exactly the kind of examples that I, I believe I can share and that's come up as of recent. This conversation has really been insightful. I can see, I can feel a lot of similarities, but then mm. I also know that some things are quite unique, very unique, and, mm. and I probably may never get done, but at least I, you know, have a sense that... The, the world really is such a huge place and a large place. And our experiences are just really different. Um, speaking of mm. experiences, I, I want to learn a thing or two about growing up for you. Maybe we can find clues as to how it happened. Or maybe, you know, we can find clues as to how come, you know, you grew up to be such a rock star. So how was growing up <laughs> for you? Okay. <laughs> I think... It's very interesting because these questions really just take my mind back to this, I would say, autobiography or book I'm currently working on. Mm. And it's making me reflect really about oh. how I grew up, you know? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and it's, yeah, and it's, and it's really about how my mom raised us, raised my family, my brothers and mm. I. Right, because she she single handedly raised us, and she she I would not say she raised us with feminist values, but the way in which we were raised, there were some other assumptions of feminist theories or thoughts and 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 attitudes. For example, we so in my family, it's very interesting how I have a lot of I have only brothers but I also have a lot of male cousins. So whenever they would visit, or even if they didn't, but whenever they would visit, it would be all of us share the chores in the house and not just me or my other female cousins. So the roles were always reversed, you know? And so I never felt that pressure to perform femininity, for example. But in other ways, there was still pressure just because I'm in a house with men, right? So mm. even though my mom raised us to be to be very, very independent, there was still the, another layer of suffocation of the fact that I'm the only girl and therefore I don't necessarily have independence outside of my brothers and 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 the patriarchal structure that that was formed and that has been there. Mm. So I also got to do a lot of what I wanted to do also. And that mm. includes, I could play soccer. <laughs> yeah. And I could, yeah. yes, I could play, uh, like I played with my brothers and it was almost to a, to a point where they, they didn't want to play with me anymore because I, I became better at what they were doing, playing. <laughs> so I was always competing in a sense. I don't know. I always had just this yeah. ambition just be better or just to grow and to win. Actually, winning was always this thing. It's always been, hmm. yeah, at the core. So that's how I grew up, always just striving to win in these settings. And yeah, I have a twin brother also, so you can imagine the comparisons that were constantly made. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have a twin brother and we were always compared. Always. So the way... Yeah. The many ways that I, I had to, you know, 
respond to these comparisons was through winning. So I made sure that I always put in extra effort for a specific thing because I didn't like to be compared in that way. So I think that's, yeah, that sums up, that's the gist of how I was raised. It's still quite fragmented, but it's really also pulled in some memories I didn't realize I could reach into. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm so glad you could reach <laughs> that memory because you can mm. draw a straight line from, you know, a child who really is allowed to grow and thrive to an adult who is confident in their views and their beliefs and not just following what society says that they should do. So that is amazing. I mean, it wasn't probably the most ideal feminist situation that you would have wanted, but it definitely was different from a lot of, a lot of young girls grew up in homes where they're just confined to the kitchen. It's just kitchen duties. No chance to dream. Not allowed to dream. You're not allowed to want to play football. I I think it's awesome that you play football. (laughs) You know, um, I, about you you know would you say people don't quite know that you can share with me you can tell me i won't tell anyone I, uh, you are a whole investigative journalist I, uh, so let me see um one thing that people don't know about me right yeah yeah so i can sketch i know how to sketch I realized okay. that I had abandoned this talent or skill so many, many years ago. I think the last sketch I, I, I put together was of my twin brother in his uniform. Now, because I was also just starting out, I did get better <laughs> at some point. But because I was starting out and really just sketching, I did not sketch him properly. So when he looked at it, he felt that I was making a mockery of him. So he reported me to my mom and my mom was like, no, <laughs> it's not right. You need to be, you know, and I think after that, I think I just stopped sketching. <laughs> but Aww. I can sketch. I think, yes, <laughs> I I would sketch in class in, in, in I remember in high school, I would look mm. at across it from the room and I would sketch someone maybe sitting on their table behind their desk and I would sketch it very, very well. And mm. I was really good. I abandoned it for some reason. Oh, maybe we would have had like, <laughs> would have had some <laughs> artist legend if you didn't abandon it many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? It, Who knows? It, it's been amazing, you know, chatting with you, learning about you the work that you do, which is really amazing. Learning about um, Namibia as a country and its feminist realities. And if you could just, you know, as a, if you could just, um, if there was one thing you wanted the world to know or to learn about Namibia, what would it be? Oh, wow. It's very hot. (laughs) It's very, very hot in Namibia. Um, Yes, I think, yeah, that's the most simple answer I can really give. <laughs> Namibia is piping I love it. hot. <laughs> it's I hot. It's and, and, yeah. Is it? I should totally visit, you know. I don't yes, know why Corona is the arts. I just imagined yeah. the whole year of traveling in 2019. And Namibia, Namibia was definitely on my list. Mm, mm, definitely. Right. You should come. 
and of course, if you do come to Nigeria, I will be happy to show you around as much as I can. Um, mm. It will be exciting, really. Yes, definitely. I'm looking forward. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. And do you have any last words for us? You know, I, you're, you're, I forgot to mention, you know, you're quite young at what you're doing. And it's, it's amazing how much you've achieved. Um, mm. It just shows that our generation is the generation that will change the world. But for the younger yes. people, do you mm. have any final words for them? Yes, I think it's something I've been reflecting on for a while. And also, from all, all, all age categories, I would say. And um, it's a quote I, I, I began to reflect on that I together. And that is that gender equality is not a destination. You're not going to some place where there you achieve gender equality. Gender equality mm. is actually a dispensation. Mm. It is a, a new system. It's a new order of doing things. So, mm-hmm. for example, all positions of power doesn't end inequality, but more structures, dismantling heterosexual toxic power does or would or could, you know. So I think that's yeah. something that we should be contemplating on mostly and be meditative over for, for all of our days, for as long as we are alive, you know, that we are not looking at destinations really, but, of, but at systems and at dispensations, at, at many, many layers and many, many levels. So it can be a dispensation in your business, you know, where you introduce a different order of doing things so that you dismantle it with those new structures, you know, those toxic structures of, of, of that, that we've always known, you know. And so that's what I really wanted to, to leave this conversation with. It's been very, very enriching and deeply empowering and reflective. Awesome. I love that. I, I really love all the layers of it and how we should embrace this new order called equality. Mm. Thank you so much for chatting with us on this podcast. We're not crazy. We're not the ones crazy for asking for equality. We're the ones crazy for not giving us equality. You've been listening to We're Not Crazy. You are proudly brought to you by Document Women. Be sure to follow our social media at Document Women. Also visit our website at www.documentwomen.com.